John chapter 19, starting at verse 16. Just to give context, I'm going to change the very beginning there. Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Here ends the reading of God's most holy word. Good morning, church. You can keep your Bibles open to the book of John. And join me as I pray for us this morning. Father, we, we are a, a room filled with, with broken and tired and hurting and sinful men and women, uh, myself included. I, I know this past week I have been filled with, with anxiety and, and the reality of, of my sin, of the, of the sin of, of, of people that, that I love dearly. And, and there's, there's so much brokenness. There's aches and pains and the, the frailty as a result of sin that is, that is coming to bear. And so, Father, we, we're here uh, because this is the best place for broken people to gather. May your word renew us this morning. May it comfort us. Uh, may it forever bless us and give us peace and hope this morning, Lord. And we pray this in the good name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we uh, step a little bit further into this new year, we are going to continue to to pause, as we have been, and carefully consider our past. And we've done that again uh, this morning. I think what, what, what Chrissy shared was, was beautiful. And we, we have people that are are lined up um, the next few weeks as we close out um, our series in the Apostles' Creed. And our desire and our hope is uh, to, to pause and, and show our, our gratitude to what God has done just in this little local church, but, um, but also to firmly position us as a church as we go forward. And, and so as we look at the Apostles' Creed, and we again, we, kinda, we wanna look at the contents of it, the, the richness of it, the oldest creed of the church, and, and has been our habit. It's not just, let's look at the creed, but let's look to scripture. Let's see what scripture has to bear for us and, and how scripture has, has, has informed and shaped the things that we believe as a church, as, as individuals, uh, most definitely, but, as, but collectively as a body of believers. We believe, we believe. And as we have arrived up until this point we are at today, what we have at least addressed so far 
is the following. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now this morning, we are going to focus our attention on what you could say is the the very center of the creed. And by center, it literally is the, the center, the middle. Um, you also could say it's the center or the most important part of anything that we believe. Now, um, the very phrases that we're going to focus on this morning, and if you turn to the back of your both, and you can see the, the creed in its entirety, but the, but the phrase we're going to focus on this morning is, is as follows. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. How often do you think about death? Uh, Now, I know that most of us probably don't, um, you know, write in our calendars (laughs) moments to think or contemplate about our death. We would probably choose to avoid it. And I can tell you that there are many things that I think about, many hours that I spill into my life, day after day, week after week, plenty of things that I think about that may never happen. <laughs> and, and yet I don't think about the one thing that's going to happen. <laughs> I'm going to die. Now there was, recently there was a, a psychologist that, from the University of California, Riverside, who produced a an article in the Journal of uh, Social and, and Personality Psychology. And one of the findings was that um, about 85% of the things that you think about will never happen. <laughs> about 85% of the things that trouble you, that worry you, right now in this room, the things that are worrying you, about 85% of the things in your life that you spend hours thinking on and contemplating will never happen. And yet, how often do we think about the very thing that will happen? You will die. And I would say more importantly, and this is probably obvious, but how many of you want to die? Even in our worst moments, most, if not all of us, would rather not die. Most of us would rather not. We would rather live. And we we shouldn't want to die because that is the consequence of sin. It was not what God wanted for you. It's not what God wants for me. Yet, men and women, this is the very thing that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to earth. He became man to die. Unfortunately, some people, might be you, some people don't think the death of Jesus was necessary. They don't think his death was needed or it didn't accomplish really anything for you and I. I mean, after all, we still, we still suffer, we still have pain, we still die, 
So, did he really have to come and die? Well, why do we think this way? Why? Well, I think, I mean, really deep down, I think it's because we still believe, to some degree, we still believe there is something that we can do to earn God's favor. We, we still believe we can be good enough. And, and, and surely, you know, I could say, look in the mirror, like, look, I know I'm not perfect, uh, but I make good choices most of the time, uh, according to me. I, I make mistakes often, uh, but I'm not that bad. Just line up some people that I can find that are worse than me. I'm looking pretty good. Uh, you know, sure, God had to die for some people. There's some bad people out there, right? You know those people. So God had to die for them, probably. Um, but I think I'm doing all right, and I've done enough good in my life that surely God will look upon me and say, you've done all right. Um, in fact, Jesus didn't really have to die for you. You were, you were good enough. But for us in this room, and for anybody else in the world that's ever lived, the message of the cross, the message of the death of Jesus is offensive to us. It it is not something we want to embrace. The cross requires a deep acknowledgement of your sin. It requires us to admit that the impossibility of you being able to do anything good, anything righteous, anything pleasing to God, so that he would have mercy on you. People continue to reject the cross and the message of the cross for many reasons. They, they reject the necessity of it. They reject it as a, a, a show of some sort of divine child abuse. Why would God send his son to die? That's horrible. That's terrible. Some people simply just deny the accounts of the death and resurrection, that it was fabricated. There's no way a, a man could become God and die. The words in our creed this morning, though there are many, but there are four in particular, the words suffered, crucified, died, and buried point to the centrality of the cross as a symbol of the Christian faith. And these, these four words, they tell a story of the cross in its power and its brutal force. And in, in the complexity of this creed and in, in the statement we're looking at today, there is one vital truth that remains, and, and the truth is this, that the death of Jesus changes the way we live and die. The death of Jesus changes the way we live and the way we die. His death, of course, linked with his resurrection, was the most transformative moment in all of human history. There's nothing that has happened in all of human history that compares. And what was accomplished on the cross wasn't merely confined to the men and women in that first century, in that space and time. It still has today a universal impact on how men and women live their lives, how men and women like you and I live. But his death doesn't just affect how we live. His death affects how you and I will die. The death of Jesus changes the way we live and die. And so three points to shape our view of this portion of the Apostles' Creed this morning. First, he suffered for your comfort. Jesus suffered for your comfort. Second, he died that you would live. Third, he descended so we would rise. 
suffered for comfort, death for life, descended to rise. So our first point this morning, Jesus suffered for your comfort. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, is, is what the creed says. Jesus suffered. Now, if you, if you observe the creed carefully, you'll notice that it moves astonishingly fast from his birth to his death. Uh, there's an incredibly large gap there, isn't there? Um, there is no mention of anything that Jesus did while he was alive. You know, what, what about his life? He did many miracles, many good works, um, but the creed says he was born and then he died. Um, how would we summarize a life like that? How would you summarize, your, if you could pick one word to summarize your life, you know, on your tombstone, there'll be one word that you could place there. What would you think would, it, would capture your life? Now, maybe you're young and you think you still have a long life to live. But even now, um, as, you, as you're sitting here, what one word would you choose? Now, maybe um, you like the word accomplished. Uh, compassionate. Does that describe your life? Uh, inspiring. Maybe the life you've lived has been inspiring to others. Genuine, a genuine life. Engaging, are you an engaging person? Uh, maybe uh, honorable, meaningful. How about remarkable? <laughs> uh, virtuous. Whatever, whatever word that you choose, uh, fortunately for you, you don't choose your own word. People will choose the word for you to describe your life. Um, and, and throughout all of uh, Christian history, particularly in the early church, they developed, uh, the earliest Christians had become customary to sum up the entire life of Christ using one word, suffering. He suffered. Luke records Jesus saying that, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? He should suffer these things, enter into his glory. And then later on in, in Acts, Luke records how Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Now, Jesus suffered many physical things, and he? he? He hungered. This is, this is part of becoming man. He hungered. He was thirsty. He was weary. And Jesus also experienced extreme physical suffering. Look in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. In John chapter 19, in verse 1, a short verse, but we'll address why we think it's short in just a moment here. In John chapter 19, verse 1, this is what John records. He says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Uh, flogged him, uh, two words, very brief. There might be a reason why Scripture does not elaborate or expand on what, what actually characterized these two very brief words. And, and the reason for that is because it was very horrific. Uh, I don't know what you think of or imagine when you think of someone being flogged. And, and I would hope that you don't <laughs> imagine what it would have been like, because it was gruesome. Uh, the Roman methods of flogging would dispense maximum pain. I mean, that was the goal. It was maximum pain to a victim while also keeping them from dying. So, in effect, it was, how much pain can we inflict on someone without actually killing them? 
Um, this victim would be stripped, bound to a post, just tied down. Scourges of whip would be used, leather whip with sometimes fragments of bones, um, rocks, things tied to the end of them. And, and this victim then would be flogged by soldiers repeatedly, again and again and again, to the point where the soldiers just became too exhausted to carry out the flogging any longer. Now, sometimes the victim would be left just with their body just hanging in shredded pieces of skin. And, and they would have kept going and done enough harm to, to put Jesus and his body in excruciating pain. Excruciating, by the way, which means from the cross. When you talk about something being excruciating, what you're saying is, it is so painful that it's like being crucified. But he would have been in excruciating pain at the very threshold of either sending him into shock or, or dying. And so prisoners would, it wouldn't be uncommon for prisoners to actually collapse from exhaustion or die under this procedure. Um, how many of you would feel uneasy just at the sight of blood? I, I know some people like that. Um, I had a friend who would pass out if she saw blood. Um, how many of you uh, feel a little uneasy trying to pull a sliver out of someone's hand? <laughs> Uh, those things obviously, no surprise, pale completely in comparison to the type of physical pain and, and infliction we're talking about that Jesus endured. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, experienced the fullness of pain, the fullness of pain that would have accompanied his torture and execution. But it wasn't just physical pain. Physical pain was a part of his suffering, but Jesus also experienced relational and emotional suffering. Jesus was emotionally abused. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. If we continue reading in John's Gospel, verses 2 through 6, and I'll jump down to verse 14, but follow along with me in in verse 2. John says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! The Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now follow me down to verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, no make, make no mistake about it, in this passage alone, and other portions of scripture, but in particular here, Jesus is mocked. You call yourself a king? Well, we'll show you what we think of you as a king. We'll give you a crown. We'll give you a robe. We'll even pay homage to you. There was a, a crown of probably a date palm spikes that were very jagged. Some say that they could be up to 12 inches long, uh, compressed in around his head. They came forward and 
and mocked him, publicly mocked him. They slapped him, they spit, they punched, they even pulled his beard. But Jesus suffered great humiliation, physical suffering, emotional suffering. And if that is even what the worst of it was, Jesus suffered the wrath of God against sin. Now, none of us who believe and trust in the work of Christ, thankfully, are never going to have to experience that type of suffering. But Jesus suffered the wrath of God against sin. And becoming the curse, Jesus experienced the fullness of God's wrath. He, he poured out his eternal punishment upon Jesus for every sin committed by his people. And Jesus endured it all. He suffered for all of it. He took it all upon himself for hours. The several hours that he hung on the cross, his shredded body hung in pain on the cross, Jesus suffered the eternal punishment of a sinner, of which he was not. But the creed goes further than to say that Jesus suffered. Now, clearly he suffered, but he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, this, this phrase may strike you as quite odd. Uh, why would this creed, or any creed for that matter, include the name of anyone else, a pagan authority, no less. You know, what, what does Pilate belong in this? You know, how did he, you know, did he pay off someone so he'd be named? <laughs> um, it just doesn't seem to fit. But, but if we think about the context of this creed and, and, and the description of the suffering and what characterized the nature of our Savior, uh, what we see is that the name of Pontius Pilate is, is first of all, it's a historical anchor for us. It prevents us from turning the Christian faith into a set of general rules about the world, and it reminds us that the gospel is, is not an idea, but a fact. Meaning, the name of Pilate is there to remind us that God has acted at a particular moment in human history, and the salvation of the world can, in fact, be dated to a particular time and a specific event where people did actually live and, and participate in commerce and, and had functioning government. Certain people were there when it happened. But even more than that, what Pilate represents for us is the legal authority of the Gentile world. It was the Gentile authority that recognized, acknowledged, and declared the universal kingship of Jesus. Look at chapter 19, verses 19 through 22. In verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate wrote, The king of the Jews. So as an authority, he could write whatever he wanted. He wrote the king of the Jews, but he also wrote it in three different languages. Now, it was written in Greek, which was the language associated historically with the development of culture. It was written in Latin, the language of government, of law, and institutions. It was written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews at the time. The death of Jesus, as he suffered under Pontius Pilate, but the death of Jesus was not confined to the Jewish people. The oversight of someone like Pilate, representative of the, of the major world power of the time, 
serves to reveal the extensive reality of the consequences of sin and the need for Christ to suffer and die on the cross. Not just for Jews, but for people from every tongue, tribe, and language. Jesus died for all peoples. Pilate helped make that a little more clear on that day. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, but what's ironic is he didn't suffer under his authority, did he? In fact, in John's Gospel, we learn that no one really had authority to kill Jesus. Not the Jews, not Pilate, but God alone. Neither Jew nor the Roman Empire is represented had any authority to send Jesus to death. Jesus had to be put to death by Roman means because the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment under their judicial dominion of the Roman Empire. So look in chapter 19, back to verse 6. I'll read 6 through 11 for us. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. What's ironic here is they couldn't do that. (laughs) They had no power to do that. Pilate's trying to get out of it. In verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. See, Pilate actually was trying to keep Jesus off the cross. And he couldn't do it which actually demonstrates the fact that he had no authority. (laughs) Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. He tried to set him free. And when asking Jesus, quite point blank, and and sort of using his, his authority as a way to, you know, exercise his influence over Jesus, Jesus tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it was given you from above. It was, it was Jesus suffering because it was the Father's will for him to suffer. Jesus suffered, but, but his suffering was no accident. The Father sent his Son to suffer for men and women, sinful men and women like you and I. And there's no form of suffering or abuse our great God and King the eternal Son of God has not experienced. He suffered under Pilate. He suffered not just for the Jews, but he suffered for men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He was emotionally abused. His body was violated. He he is the Son of God, the God of the abused, the daily victims of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse in our society have a Savior, a Savior who knows their suffering. He's experienced your suffering. There's nothing you or I will experience in this life, any 
trial or suffering that he has not known himself, which makes him the only one who can properly care, that makes him all the more ready to comfort you. He knows your pain. He has felt your anguish. He has wept while mourning the loss of his closest friends. He has been betrayed by those closest to him. He faithfully endured a life of suffering for you. And he stands ready to comfort you in your suffering. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered for our comfort. And point two this morning, Jesus died that we might live. He suffered for your comfort. He died so that you would live. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And we might want to even just stop and pause really quick and say, well, why was Jesus sentenced to death in the first place? You know, we all, we all suffer. Jesus suffered to the point of death, but the charges against Jesus were, were essentially twofold. Now, he was charged with blasphemy, which was the charge the Jews brought, and he was charged with treason, which was the charge that the Roman trial produced through Pilate. So Jesus died as a blasphemer and a traitor. He died to someone claiming to be God and someone who claimed to be king. Jesus, fully God, king of the universe, claimed to be God and king. Therefore, he was accused of being God and being king. So the Jews accused him. Pilate had no choice but to accuse him. And so Jesus claimed to be God and king. And these two, these two accusations, these two charges, these two perversions are at the heart of all human sins. He, starting, starting way back in the garden, and now, even now, these same, these are the same violations that men and women like you and I, men and women in Merton, we are facing those same charges. Men and women who are trying to be like God and trying to be king of our lives. These are the charges that we face at the judgment seat of God, and these are the charges that Jesus faced at the judgment seat of the Jews. In chapter 19, verse 7, first the Jews, they have at it. The Jews answered Pilate. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself the son of God. And then in verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. He made himself God. He made himself king. Now, Jesus wasn't just killed, was he? He was crucified. And crucifixion wasn't just about death. Now, it would kill you, uh, but it was more about public disgrace. The problem with getting yourself crucified wasn't that it would just kill you, but that it would humiliate you at the same time. Uh, the condemned man was forced to carry, not the entire cross, but the, but the cross beam, the horizontal cross piece, and the victim was laid on the cross piece, fixed to it by a, usually iron nails driven through his, his wrists. The victim was left there to die, and it could take days. But that was on purpose. You were meant to suffer 
four days. A long, slow, agonizing descent into hell ended finally by suffocation, usually is how someone who was crucified would die, because they would cease to have any energy left to raise themselves up to be able to take in oxygen. And so they would die from asphyxiation. And so terrible was crucifixion that even no Roman citizen was permitted to undergo it, no matter how heinous the crime. If you, were, if you were a Roman citizen, you were barred from that type of execution. And so Jesus was crucified, and then he died. So look with me at chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Those words, going back to verse 30, those, those few words, it is finished. The last words of the crucified Lord. His final utterance that shook the foundation of the earth, that tore the curtain of the temple, thundered across the sky. When Jesus declared it is finished, he declared that salvation had finally, fully, and forever come. That's what his death accomplished. He had come to save sinners, even the ones who put him on that cross. Indeed, my sin, your sin, and the sin of all God's people held Jesus upon that cross. Jesus not only offers the perfect sacrifice for sins, he became the sacrifice. The, the superior character of, of the death of this man, this sacrifice is seen in that it was offered also just one time, once for all. Thus the cross uniquely fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is the absolute, absolute perfect, once and for all, sacrifice offering because he laid down his life for the sheep. So Jesus, he was crucified, he died, and then he was buried. And um, John describes Jesus' burial for us, uh, not by accident or by way of just uh, you know, creating a proper conclusion for us, uh, which would naturally come next when someone dies. But the burial of Jesus communicates something vitally important for all that took place in, in his crucifixion and death. The tomb and his burial represent the extent of God's love and the cost of our sin. 
The, the burial of the Son of God displays that, that paradox, that unity of the full horror of human sin and the, that illustrious, cosmic, infinite, and scandalous love of God for us in Christ. Let's, let's go to chapter 19, verses 38 through 41, and we'll read about John's account of his burial. Beginning at verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus would not really have shared our nature if he had not also shared in all of our limitations as men and women. Everyone comes into the world through the womb and departs into the tomb. And so the Son of God embraced our humanity in all of these extreme limits. He came in through the virgin's womb, and he left, died, and was buried. So the burial of Jesus signifies that he belongs unmistakably to the abode of the dead. And because Jesus was crucified, died, and buried, men and women like you and I can live. Jesus declared from the cross, from the very cross, Jesus declared, it is finished, which means for you and I, sitting right now in this room, you can know forever that there is no payment for your sin. You owe nothing. Did you sin this morning? Jesus said, it is finished. Will you and I sin later this afternoon? <sighs> Absolutely. Jesus said, it is finished. There is no more payment required. And this, this man died so that you can now live. He suffered for your comfort. He died so that you would live. And third, third point this morning, he descended so that you would rise. He suffered for comfort, died to live, descended to rise. He descended so that we would rise. Now, the phrase, again, it's, it's a complete uh, statement. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. So after Jesus was crucified, after he died, buried, he descended to the dead. Now, both both Old Testament and New Testament describe the realm of the dead. Now, the Hebrew word for the, from the Old Testament is the word that you might recognize, shale. Uh, and the Greek word from the New Testament, which you also might recognize, is the word Hades. Now, the, the translation of Hades into Latin and then into English can confuse us because 
the word Hades is often translated as the word hell. So that's why sometimes you'll see uh, statements uh, encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed, translated or rendered as, he descended to hell. Uh, Now this is not so much as wrong as it is just inadequate. Because what the descent does tell us is that Jesus truly did die. He truly died. And what this, this, this phrase in the creed, what it does for us, is it underlines that very important fact. And what the, what the creed is attempting to address for us is the answer to two questions, I think, primarily. One is, where did the spirit of Jesus go when he died? And what was further accomplished after that? So in verse 30, again, Jesus, his famous words, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so, as Christians, we're wondering, well, where did he go? Well, we know he didn't ascend until 40 days later. So, where, where was Jesus? What was he doing? Now, he did rise in three days. So, where did Jesus go after he died? Well, heaven and and Sheol are invisible realms of spiritual existence. We can't see them. We can't see the spiritual world. So God's given them names based on the highest, high, highest heights and on the, the, the deepest depths of, of what is invisible to man, uh, but we can, we can obviously see everything that is physically created. So the scriptures use language from the visible world to make the, the invisible world perceptible so we can understand it. So when we read through the scriptures, we see that Sheol, or this... this um, the sense of the grave uh, is referred to as the pit, as the abyss, as the, the lowest parts of the earth. Uh, Sheol is, is a common place of all the dead, whether righteous or wicked. So be a way of referring to, as you die, you go to Sheol. You go, you go descend uh, to the grave, to the pit, to the abyss. And Hades, likewise, just meant the unseen place and was regarded in Greek thought as a common place for all the dead. So scripture employs both terms to say, when you die, you would go to the land of the dead. Now David wrote in Psalm 16, he said, uh, for you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your holy one see corruption. And then later on in Acts, Peter quotes this very psalm of David. And Peter says that David spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so even as Christ truly died and his body was buried in the grave, even as his spirit entered the realm of the dead, Christ was not abandoned, nor did his body suffer corruption. And Now, that might sound really obscure and strange. So even if we agree that he descended to the dead, well, what does that matter for you and I? What did Jesus actually accomplish if he did, in fact, descend there? Well, I would say quite a bit. Uh, there's what the Jews would have known in the nation of Israel as the, the Day of Atonement recorded for us in Leviticus 16. And since we don't usually go to Leviticus 16, guess what you get to do today? You get to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. What was prescribed for the nation of Israel in Leviticus chapter 16 was, in fact, the Day of Atonement. And most likely in your Bibles, you're going to see there's a heading there, the Day of Atonement. There was instructions given to Israel for how to make atonement for the people. They would need, in particular, two goats for two different purposes. Two goats for two different purposes. So 
beginning in verse 16, verse 5, we see the instructions given, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, and one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. I go to verse 15. Verse 15, they say, Then he, that is Aaron, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And then lastly, down to verse 20 through 22. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. What is happening here? The ceremony in Leviticus 16 and the instructions given for this nation to deal with sin once a year was a ceremony that removed the sin from the people and then leaves them in a, this, this animal leaves them all their sins in an unclean place, the desert, perhaps a deep valley, so that the animal had no chance of returning to Israel and bringing back the guilt of their sins. There were two goats. One was killed, sacrificed as a sin offering. The other one, all the sins were placed on this goat. This goat was sent away to the pit, to the abyss, living, but took the sins far from the nation of Israel, far from the people, never to return. Jesus descended to the dead. Jesus represents the fulfillment of both goats. Jesus is the goat that was killed as a sin offering for you. But Jesus is also the living goat, which the sins of the people were laid upon. Jesus is the true scapegoat. He was innocent. But all the sins were placed on Jesus. And when he was sent into the wilderness, to Sheol, into the pit, the land of the dead, Jesus carried your sins as far away as he could. What Jesus did is he took your sins to death and left them there forever. 
But what was unique about that goat was that was a living goat. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but there's a part in this creed that's going to talk about that living one coming back. So while he took your sin and carried your sin as far away and left it there, your sin is left in the land of the dead, never to return. Jesus didn't stay there. So you and I now have a better hope. When you and I die, we no longer go to the land of the dead like saints of old. When you and I die, we have a much better promise. For those who die in Christ, we will now rise. Jesus went down so that you and I, when we die, we go up. We believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. We believe he descended to the dead. Jesus suffered for your comfort. He died so that you and I would live. And he descended so that you would rise. So the death of Jesus changes the way we live, and it changes the way that we die. Pray. Father, thank you for sending your perfect, spotless Son to live a life of suffering, a life that knows no other word but suffering, so that men and women in this room would find comfort in this life, Lord. That no matter what our struggles are, no matter what our our pains are, emotional, physical, that your son came to this earth to suffer for us, for our comfort. Jesus, thank you for marching straight for the cross. You endured the cross your your intent on fulfilling your Father's will to set men and women free from the eternal pains of death for our sin, Lord. There there is nothing more remarkable that we could sing about, Lord, that, that you came, our precious spotless lamb, to be crucified, to die, to be buried, and to send to the dead, to remove our sins far from us forever. So as we are about to sing, see him there, the great I am, the crown of thorns upon his head, the Father's heart displayed for us, lifted up on Calvary's hill. We cursed your name, and even still, you bore our shame and paid the cost. O God, we thank you for the cross. Let's stand and continue to sing this morning. Let's sing.